Uh, well, other than fantasy football championships and playoffs, the other thing that you guys might have on your mind is the fact that today is December 31st, and we're all looking forward to turning over another year. 2024 is just hours away from us, and doubtless many of you have had some thoughts about your New Year's resolutions, right? That's all the talk this week. How is next year going to look different? What are some things I'd like to accomplish? What are some things I need to not be doing? And so out of curiosity, I went online and found that Forbes Health has a survey out there in which they interviewed 1,000 U.S. adults. And these are the results of the most popular New Year's resolutions amongst Americans. I'm going to give you the top tier right here. Uh, starting out with number one, we have improved fitness. I think we all probably saw that coming. Uh, really speaks into the anomaly uh, that we are as Americans this day and age. My button's starting to scream right here, so I'm in that list. Um, number two, improved finances. Number three, improved mental health. Number four, to lose weight. And number five, improved diet, which four and five really kind of correspond uh, to number one. And then there's a middle tier. I'm going to pass over that right now. But there's a bottom tier that I found quite interesting. Less than 5% of those who made a New Year's resolution said that they would like to meditate more regularly. Uh, meditation is actually becoming quite popular today, not necessarily Christian meditation, but meditation in general. Get this, 3% of those who made a resolution said that they would like to drink less alcohol, which I'm a little suspicious. I know what's going through your minds. Like It might be a little bit more than 3% who need to make that resolution but we'll just kind of go with that. And then lastly, one that I found quite interesting is those, uh, the least popular amongst the New Year's resolutions was to perform better at work. Uh, raise your hand if that's you. Uh, it's a test. It's a test. Hopefully, uh, no doctors or lawyers or pastors uh, were found on that list. But it got it got me thinking this week that if we look back at the last several decades uh, of New Year's resolutions, there's usually a common theme, uh, with the exception maybe of 1999, uh, when all of us were just wanting to make it through the end of a millennia. Like, remember the Y2K fear and madness? Like, what's going to happen? Uh, is the Matrix going to glitch? Um, that was a popular 1999 movie. Are, are transparent Apple computers going to combust? Like, what's going to happen? And then at 12.01, we're like, deep sigh, we made it through Y2K. With the exception of that, though, for the most part, the theme of New Year's resolutions have been self-betterment, uh, self-improvement. And when I think about that, it serves for me as a kind of proof uh, to the universe uh, that the world knows that something is broken, that something's off, like not all is well. If we look at human history, if we look at what 2023 has brought us, we're all looking at, at that and saying, yeah, the world is pretty broken. And, and, and if we are honest and we look at ourselves with correct lenses, then we can say that we ourselves are broken, that all is not fine and dandy, Dolly Parton, we're a mess if we're honest. And we miss the mark as Christians like the rest of the world misses the mark if we think that self-improvement is what we truly need. Uh, putting our hopes in a resolution 
that, that promises satisfaction but might be empty rather than seeking to find satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone, finding him as our safe place, finding, finding him as our joy in all things. And so I started thinking, Courtney and I did some New Year's resolutions. We talked about things we'd like to achieve uh, separately and as a couple. And then I started to evaluate that and think, and I'm going to ask you guys the same question. When I look at what I might like 2024 to look like, how much of my concern is growing in godliness? Growing in Christ-like character, humility, Like, are my goals more humanistic than they are gospel-saturated? Is my mind focused on the here and now as opposed to having an eternal mind, an eternal perspective? When we see character flaws in ourselves, we can take that to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be a more patient man or a more patient mother, a more kind man or kind woman. Lord, I want to be more available to your Holy Spirit's promptings. I want to be more obedient to your command to tell the gospel to the world around me, which we're going to be doing collectively as a church again on this coming Saturday. Uh, From 12 to 3, we're going to be going back to Under Over Fellowship in Conroe. We're going to be delivering food, and then we're going to be delivering the gospel. Open up my eyes to see the need around me. Is that not what we just sang? Join us, please. It's on the flyer uh, that Brent mentioned. I think he has some more information uh, after today's message. So all that has to do with perspective, though. Having an earthly perspective as opposed to having, having an eternal perspective. And Paul tells Timothy, this young pastor in 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8, he tells him to train himself for godliness, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. And so what he's urging Timothy to do is is saying, Timothy, don't be so earthly focused with your goals and your aspirations, but fix your eyes on Christ. And as you do that, you will be better fit for everything that you lay your hands to. They will have a lasting and eternal impact. And so with regards to perspective, I want us to turn now to a psalm that has given me that eternal perspective. And my hope and eager prayer is that it would do the same for you. I'm talking about the first psalm ever written. And I'm not talking about Psalm 1, but I'm actually talking about Psalm 90. It's a psalm of Moses. And so when the psalmist compiled the books, they didn't put them in chronological order. And so Psalm 90 predates all the other psalms by several generations. This is ancient wisdom, but it is so relevant for us today. So if you have your Bibles or on the screen behind me, please follow along. I'll read the whole of Psalm 90. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. 
You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Like grass, they are renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many of days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Children, we're glad you're in service with us today. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This psalm, like I said, is ancient, predating the other psalms, but it is an ancient wisdom that is timeless, a kind of ancient wisdom that can reorient our whole world outlook, that can reorient what we expect 2024 to look like. And so we're going to go through the whole of this psalm. We might go pretty quickly. We don't have time to go into every detail. But right off the bat, looking at verse 1, he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And so for us as Christians, as believers, we look at that and we find comfort, right? That From the beginning of time, the people of God have found true refuge in God and in God alone. Christ is our security. He is our safe place. He is our strong tower. And Moses is speaking about that, but that's not necessarily his main point, nor his main focus. Rather, it comes at the end of this statement when he says, in all generations, He's beginning to point our attention to an attribute of God, which is his eternality. And we see that more clearly in verse 2. When he says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is the eternal one. He is the unchanging one. He is the God who is immutable, without mutation. And the reason why Moses is saying this is because he wants to set up an argument and he wants to show us this morning that by contrast to God's eternality, you and I are not. And he begins to point to our own own mortality, the brevity of our life. We see this change direction quickly in verse three. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Those words might sound really familiar. Moses, we know, is not only the author of Psalm 90, but he's also the author of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah or Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. And he's pointing us to his inspired words found in Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord in his judgment says, you are from dust, and to dust you shall return. And here Moses is showing to us that God is the sovereign one over life. He's the ultimate decider of when life begins and when life ends. It is 
our mortality that he's beginning to stress here. And he's going to unpack that more clearly for us in verses four through six, where he says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. I want us to contemplate this morning of all that takes place over the course of a thousand years. Think of all the history that goes back to the year 1000. The rise and fall of kingdoms and empires, the cultural shifts, cultural changes. I actually made a list for us today, uh, and I tried to put a little bit of everything of some major events that have happened over the course of the last thousand years. There's a little bit of something for everyone, whatever your niche might be. So going back a thousand years, all the way to the year 1066, we see the Norman conquest of Britain. 1206, Genghis Khan begins his largest empire in history. 1271, Marco Polo begins his travels to Asia. The 1300s, the Renaissance begins in Italy. 1347, bubonic plague. 1492, Columbus sails some oceans. 1509, Michelangelo begins painting the Sistine Chapel. 1517, everybody should know this here, shout it. Reformation, we got it. Brent, no surprise there. 1603, Shakespeare writes Hamlet, a beautiful play. 1764, Mozart writes the first symphony. 1808, Beethoven writes his fifth symphony. 1914, World War I begins. 1939, Hitler invades Poland. World War II begins. 1969, Armstrong walks the moon, or did he? 1985, Nike releases Air Jordan 1. That's for the sneakerheads in the room. 1991, the breakup of the Soviet Union. That's for the anti-communists in the room. 1997, Mike Tyson bites off Evander Holyfield's ear in what is regarded as bite fight. That's, that's for Tom Morrison and his fight club. 2020, insert whatever madness you experienced. 2023, Seth loses fantasy football championship. That one's prophetic, so we still have a few hours to go, so we'll, we'll see if that holds through. Two, a thousand years are as Yesterday, as last night, think about it. Like I told Courtney this morning, I blinked and the alarm went off. A thousand years are as nothing to the eternal God. And if that is the case, then we have to ask the question, question what, is, what is my life if a thousand years are as a span of a few hours? Well, the Bible, the brother of Jesus, James, says that in chapter 4, 13, what is your life? For your life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Psalm 39.5 says, Behold, you have made my days as a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And so what the psalmist is saying here is that when you and I like to think about the timeline of our life, what we tend to do is probably think we're here now in the present, but we came from a thousand miles that way. And to take comfort in our, our, the brevity of our life, we say, well, we still have 10,000 more miles of life to experience, right? Like when I was 20, I thought my 20s were just before me. I was so excited. I have this whole decade of this, this prime of life, if you will, and I blinked and they were gone in an instant. 
And so what the psalmist is saying is that when you think about your life in the form of a timeline, you don't need miles. You don't need kilometers. You don't need a measuring rod. You don't need measuring tape. You don't need yards. You don't need feet but a hand breath. What he's describing uh, was a common way of measurement back then. It's, it's literally the width of your hand. Four fingers, and all of us have different sized hands, but it's more or less the same. All you need to measure the timeline of your life is one, two, three-ish right here in front of you. Don't think a thousand miles that way and a thousand miles right here. And then he begins to say, your life is like a breath. And it's been pretty cold out, right, lately? And I love that because you get to see your breath. And so maybe on your way to HEB tonight, as you pick up that last minute thing that you forgot, just take a moment in the parking lot, see your breath, just come and then vanish and then think, such is my life. That is the brevity of our life. And so Moses is very clear. The Bible is very clear. God's word is very clear. Life is short and we will die. And you're thinking, this is a New Year's message? That raises a question in our heart, doesn't it? Like you feel it. You've thought it. The world feels it. The world asks this question, why? Why do we die? Why do we have to die? Why so soon? Why is life so short? Why, if I go and, and meditate in a cemetery, do I see some tombstones that go over 100 years some that reach 80, like this psalm says, some 50, some 30, 20, 10, 3. Why? Well, he'll explain in, in, the, in the preceding verses in 7 to 11. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? These verses right here are not easy to understand necessarily. And once we do finally maybe understand them, they're, they're not easy to accept, are they? So if in the first six verses of this psalm, we see the eternality of God, then here we certainly see the severity of God, and specifically the severity of God towards sin. So in verse seven, when he says, we are brought to an end by your anger, right? That's the uncomfortable verse that we have to wrestle with. I believe there's two things uh, that are coming to play in this. And most commentators believe it's one of these two. I actually see both of them, but I'll leave that to your discretion. You can decide. So the first thing that I see here is that Moses is talking about a decision. He's talking about a judgment, a righteous judgment that God has made in condemning sin. When Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, the forbidden fruit in the garden, he made a judgment and said, surely the day that you eat this, you will die. And the result of which is our mortality and the brevity of human life. He's talking about the curse. 
And so our mortality and the shortness of our lives is a direct result of God's judgment, the consequences of sin. That's why we die. That's why you and I will pass away. And the other thing that I see happening here is God's occasional discipline and chastening of his own people, his own children when they go wayward. Sin for the believer, though forgiven, though there's mercy and grace when we repent, sometimes there are still heavy consequences that we must endure. Consequences for our shortcomings and failures. And so I want us to remember that that who Moses is talking about here is himself and the people of God. He's not talking about the Philistines. He's not talking about the Canaanites. He's talking about the Hebrews. And so there's no emphasis on Hebrews right there. Um, We have some Hebrews employees in the room, but... um, that was for you. His emphasis is that these are God's people and they are dismayed. They are in trouble. And Moses, at this point in time when he's writing this psalm, had just experienced some pretty traumatic things. One was the death and loss of his sister, Miriam. Secondly was the loss of Aaron, which was pretty intense. Like God speaks to Moses and says, hey, Aaron's not gonna enter the promised land because of his rebellion. And then he tells him, so go up to your brother, strip him of his priestly garments, give him to his sons, take him up the mountain, and then he's gonna die. Like who wants to have that conversation with their brother? Like God said it, man, I'm sorry. And he did, and and the people of God wept for 30 days. Not only that, though, we look at the last 40 years of Moses with his people. He's seen an entire generation waste and squander their lives. Because of their rebellion, at one point in time, 23,000 die in a single day because of sexual immorality in the camp. Moses had seen and been very acquainted with death. And when you look at his words, You can almost see, man, he sounds tired, weary. His plea and cry to the Lord comes from a lot of experience in the fall, tasting the sting of death all around him. And so for us to make this relevant here today, we have to remember that poor decision-making, and in other words, going on in sin can sometimes have real lasting impacts in our lives. It's a question I have to ask myself, question I wanna ask you guys today. Is sin holding you back from progressing in your walk of obedience to the Lord? Are there secret sins in your life, in your heart, things you try to hide that you know you need to quit, you know you need to go before the Lord and repent and, and ask him to renew you and to give you strength over that, but time and time again you keep putting up with it. You kind of throw your hands in the air and say, "Ah, oh well, it's it's not that important. Consider the severity of God in this text. And another way to maybe ask this question is, what's robbing and stealing my joy in God? What's distracting me from finding pleasure in him? What's veiling my eyes from seeing the beauties of Christ And so Moses begins to go on, verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and the wrath and your wrath according to the fear of you? In other words, what he's saying is, who thinks about this stuff, really? Who takes time to ponder these realities? Who meditates on these things? 
The answer is no one. Apart from the Holy Spirit, no one. And so in verse 12, he begins this plea, this cry out to the Lord, so. That so is in light of the first 11 verses, in light of everything that we just talked about. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In light of the eternality of God, the severity of God, the brevity of man's life, the just and righteous wrath of God on us against sin, teach us to number our days. Thomas Tyne, a Puritan, uh, says this, of all arithmetical, that's just a fancy word for math, of all math rules, this is the hardest, to number our days. Men can number their herds and droves of oxen and sheep They can estimate the revenues of their manors and farms. They can, with little pains, number and tell their coins, and yet they're persuaded that their days are infinite and innumerable, and therefore do never begin to number them. Essentially what he's saying is, you and I do a lot of counting all the time. And what some of us might be tempted to do is sit in front of our computer, log into our accounts, see our 401k, your Roth IRA, your bank account, your money, the money you expect to come in in the next year, your investments are just rocking and rolling. We can count all of those to the penny. But does anyone sit to ponder their days? You can think about all of the earthly blessings that you have and take comfort in them. And that begins to sound like a parable that Christ gave us, right? You fool. Did you not know tonight your soul would be required of you? So what does numbering our days look like? To number our days, I I don't think he literally means help me tally up all the days of my life. And the reason why I think that, uh, and you probably have it in the back of your mind, is do we really need divine intervention to number our days if he means to just count the total number of days that we've lived? Like all of us here can take out our iPhones, open up your calculator, 365 times your age, right? We don't need divine intervention for that, but I think what his plea is, is to be able to have an eternal perspective. The reason for this prayer is of numbering our days is that apart from the grace of God, we will not contemplate all of these attributes that I've mentioned. We won't contemplate the brevity of our lives, the wrath of God, the atonement of Christ. Nor will we be weaned from having our comforts in this world, right? We don't naturally bend Godward. We're not naturally bent towards holiness. Most of us, our whole Christian walk will be a fight to put to death the deeds of our body. And that's what we're commanded to do. But not only that, you and I need grace to number our days so that we would walk in wisdom, that we would use our time to the glory of God. A heart that is wise will ponder and meditate these realities. Do you want to be wise in in 2024? I, I do. Then we must take these things into account and then go before the Lord and say, Lord, teach us. Teach us to number our days. Give us grace to live to the glory of your name. 
Paul says it in Ephesians this way, chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So uh, roughly 200 uh, to 400-ish years ago, uh, your walk to church would have looked very different than it probably looks today. Uh, so for me, on that last stretch, I like to pull into the Kalashi factory, uh, get a couple of those, eat them down Cove uh, in the parking lot, say hello to you fine people, come in here and, and do my job. But 200 to 400 years ago, in what's regarded as the Puritan era, your walk to church would have been met with first walking through a graveyard. And that was intentional. This is what your path would have looked like as you entered into church. Right before you go in, you're confronted with your mortality. And then as you leave the church, you're confronted again with that same mortality. I think there's one more picture here. Same church though. Maybe not. And for most of us, our neighborhoods look like this in October, but, but most of the year it, it looks you know, different and, and pretty. And if you were to zoom in on one of these tombstones, you would see, there's one more picture, you might see it more clearly, this phrase, this Latin phrase, memento mori. Have you heard of it before? It's a phrase that simply means, remember you must die. And it was a constant reminder for them of the shortness of life. And where's this message coming from? It's coming from a tomb to the living to say, hey, you're going to wind up here too, so don't, don't forget that. Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan, one of my favorite uh, theologians, one of the best preachers that America has seen, at the age of 18 and 19, wrote 70 resolutions. So if you're still looking for your New Year's resolution, maybe you can adopt some of his. And, and most of them had to do with how he spent his time, but the others had memento mori written all over him. So here's a few examples. Resolve number six, to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve number seven, never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were in my last hour of my life. Remember that when you're popping fireworks later. Resolve number seven, to think much on all occasions about my own dying and the common things which are involved with and surrounding death. Resolve 47, this is the last one, never from this day until the day I die, act as if I were in any way my own, but entirely and altogether belong to God, then live in a way agreeable to this reality. Like how different would our lives look if we just put that in front of us on a daily basis? I'm not my own. I'm, I'm blood purchased by the blood of Christ. Proceeding Jonathan Edwards and the rest of the Puritans by over a thousand years, maybe roughly 1,400 to 1,500 years, uh, was a man by the name of Jerome. I have a, another picture of him. There he is right there. He's studying and he has a human skull you can add that to your study, um, to remind him of the brevity of his life. My wife, who's awesome with Canva, helped me put those words up there. Thank you, baby. And so when we look at the Puritans, when we look at Jerome and those who contemplated life this way, we might be tempted to think that these were just gloomy people, man. 
Like they didn't live, but that was far from the truth. Here's one commentator with regards to the Puritans. He says, you might be tempted to imagine the Puritans as morose and joyless souls fighting their way through brutish and short lives as if thinking often on death meant living under a dark and depressing cloud, distracted from the goodness and beauty of the world around him. But that was far from true of them and it need not be true of you either. And so Jonathan Edwards, this man who had memento mori written all over these resolutions, I want to let you know this. He also had a letter that he wrote, an essay that he wrote. And in it, he was stunned at the beauty of God in his design of spiders. Right? So he was absolutely amazed and astonished at God's beauty and how he designed a spider. He talks about they have this unique liquid in them. And when it comes out and meets the air, it hardens. And that web that it produces has everything that spider will ever need for its entire life. All of the tools at his disposal. And yet that tool is lighter than air. And then he just combusts in worship. Praise God. And when I think about that, my desire, my dream for Rico and any other kids that the Lord blesses us with is, man, I want them to be curious Christians. I want them to look at the world with wonder and amazement at God. Like, kids, do you know that you can glorify and worship God by playing with bugs? Doesn't that sound awesome? Don't eat them, but you can stare at them. Ask your parents if you can touch them first. The Puritans worked hard to capture our imaginations with death, but not for death's sake. They did that to prepare our imaginations for Jesus. Because you and I taste the stings of death and the curse every day. We see it all around us. If you have eyes for it. As soon as you leave this building, you will see the effects of the curse. If you watch Sunday evening news, it's the most depressing hour in the entire week, is it not? And that's just our little neck of the woods. But every time we see that, every time we see, taste, feel the effects of the fall, when we do, we can see the relevancy of Christ because he has come to reverse that very curse. And in every one of these situations, we can see his redemptive work, that he is reconciling the world back to himself, that his blood washes and cleanses and makes new. That's why Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer in his famous Christian hymn that probably we sang and heard many times this month, Joy to the World, and it's a shame uh, that people take and distort these lyrics because his third stanza is one of my favorites. He says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. How far is the curse found around you? And do you see the relevancy of Christ? the power of his blood, his atoning work in your life. Memento Mori can put a lot of lesser problems into perspective. 
In fact, just a couple of days ago, I'll be honest, I was just being dumb. Like Courtney and I, I've tried to make this agreement that we set the car key in a specific place. We've been sharing a car for a while uh, and, and it never really happens the way that I might want it to. Uh, and so I was trying to get out of the house on Thursday, I believe, uh, early uh, and it wasn't there and I didn't know where it's at. It's in one of her purses or somewhere else. Uh, and so I kind of wake her up a little bit rudely. It's like, babe, it's not where I asked it. And she helps me uh, kindly. And I'm driving off. It's like 6 or 6.30 in the morning, going to my coffee. And I'm rehearsing. Like, I'm just going to let her know how frustrated I am later. Like, how long must I put up with you not putting the key where I want it to be? I order my coffee. And I went to a coffee shop to prepare for this. I order my coffee. I'm waiting there, rehearsing. How am I going to say it? And then it hits me, memento mori, like, hold up. Okay, God, did you really bless me with marriage for me to be here like this, like bitter and wrathful and graceless? Is this, is this really good? Like, am I really trusting in, in Christ? Am I really fulfilled in him? Am I willing to overlook an offense if this, you could call this an offense? Is this really what's best for my son, for his father to be bitter towards his mom this morning? And if I die now, is this what I want my marriage to be known for? And then I repented. <laughs> I was like, God, thank you. No, in, in, in light of eternity, this isn't that important, is it? And so you might not lose your temper like I do, but I'm sure if you have this in front of you, it might put a lot of lesser problems away from you. And so think about it, man. Maybe today before midnight, maybe you ponder your own funeral and maybe that gives you some grace to make some wise decisions, right? Where to live, where to move, where to be, what job to take, what clothes to buy, what shoes to look at online, all these end of year emails that you're probably receiving like me. Lastly, and, and I'll, I'll be very brief on this last one. Verses 17, oh, sorry, 13 through 17. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let their favor of the Lord our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I want to I focus mostly on verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And so again, Moses, the author of Exodus, tells the story of how God provided sustenance for his people. And, and that account talks about that morning by morning, God would provide manna for them and tell them to pick it up, collect it for the day, and by the evening, it would burn up and melt. And I think with that in mind, that morning-by-morning morning provision, Moses is turning our attention to the fact that bread alone will not satisfy us. God, I'm tired. I've seen the effects of the fall all around me. I feel my brokenness. And so the bread that you provided, I'm, I'm thankful for. Praise you for it. But I need something more. Do you feel that in your heart this morning? I need something more than just good earthly things. 
I need a God who can satisfy my restless heart, who can comfort me in times of trouble, who can fulfill me with this eternal longing that I have. And so we see this beautiful announcement of Christ about himself in the Gospels. In John chapter 6, verse 51, he proclaims, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He is the bread that satisfies, the bread from heaven. And so though you and I must experience death, we don't have to fear death. In fact, we can look at death as just a doorway into eternal joy, happiness, gladness. Death for the believer is the end of all pain and all sorrow. However, for those who do not, have not trusted in Christ, you could say that it's the end of any enjoyment that they'll ever experience. And so where will you find yourself? Where will your hope be in this new year? In close, uh, and I'd like to ask the band if they could please uh, come up. The only one who can ever satisfy the longing of your heart is Jesus. He can conquer your restless thoughts. He can comfort your greatest fear, even the fear of death. His blessing has been poured out so that wherever the curse is found, look for it today. There is grace and redemption offered. My earnest prayer for you, C3, this week has been that this new year, that you would live with a memento mori, that you would remember the brevity of your life and that that would free you to live wholeheartedly and passionately for Jesus this year. And that you would be satisfied morning by morning with his steadfast, unchanging, eternal love. And from that place, he will establish the work of our hands. When we set our eyes upon Christ, upon eternity, we will be better equipped for every responsibility that we have in this life. And those things will now have an eternal and lasting impact generation to generation, to your children and to your children's children. Do you believe and hope in that promise? Let's pray.